0: Welcome back to another episode of the King's Pulse podcast presented by the King's Herald. My name is Brendan Nunes, and today we continue our offseason series uh, covering the other 29 teams throughout the association in alphabetical order. I am sp- skipping Chicago for now because we're circling back around. I didn't realize how many Eastern Conference teams there were at the start when you go in alphabetical order. So I promise we're going to get to Western Conference teams eventually, but this team has been... Uh, probably the headline of recent news in the NBA, and to cover the Cleveland Cavaliers, I have Justin Rowan, who is the co-host
1: of the Chase Down podcast. Um, how you doing, Justin? I'm doing terrific. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, yeah, it, it seems like a lot of Eastern Conference teams uh, seem to to like the top half of the alphabet. So you're you're stuck with us. <laughs>
0: Not a bad thing. I think those are the teams that I uh, understandably, I think don't have a great feel for. So it's definitely useful for me to uh, have people on like yourself who cover the team in depth and kind of get a little bit of a better understanding. And usually how I like to start with this, I know it's a very vague question, but can you just walk me through What last season looked like for Cleveland, you know, 44 and 38, eighth seed in the east, but end up getting knocked out in the play in Um, a lot of young guys that performed well. But however you want to take that um, and however long you need, can you walk me through what last season was like for the Cavaliers?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what jumps out to me last season was the fact that they exceeded their win-loss total by about 17 games. And it it still felt a a little disappointing at the end with with how everything finished up. I mean, you look at last season and they were projected for 27 wins and they got off to a great start uh, despite a lot of injuries. I think only the Orlando Magic uh, had more injuries, uh, injured game miss Uh, In the Eastern Conference than the Cavs and by the All-Star break, they were only a half game out of first place in the Eastern Conference. And uh, that was not something that anybody expected. Uh, Unfortunately, I think the cumulative toll of all those injuries ended up catching up to them. Um, uh, You start off losing Colin Sexton 11 games in um ricky rubio goes down and at the end of december and it's funny like I, I think a lot of the narrative is hey the the calves after ricky rubio went down they weren't as good reality is january was actually their best month i think they went 11 and 4 uh without ricky rubio it's just they lost a lot of their different options and ways that they could play uh it went to a very heliocentric offense around darius garland and that worked for a while But as the back injury started to creep up for him uh, at at the end of January, um, as Lowry Markinen went down, uh, then losing Jared Allen, Karis LeVert, uh, Rajon Rondo was brought in and and he went down almost immediately. Um, It just, it it all added up. And and unfortunately the only game that they really got to play after the All-Star break with their entire roster was the second play-in game against the Atlanta Hawks. And even that Jared Allen was playing with one hand. So um it was an exciting season uh it, one of my favorite gas seasons in, in a long time um but it there was still kind of the taste and the sentiment that a lot more could have happened and that this team could be better than they were even last year without a lot of changes internally definitely
0: helps that their roster is very very young especially the core pieces of it um i don't think i fully understood the extent of all the injuries that this team dealt with last year. So <laughs> uh that's definitely uh good to note. And Evan Mobley, I think seems like the clear highlight of last year and, and maybe just the team going forward in general. I kind of view him as Garland as the two primary pieces with a lot of and I guess Donovan Mitchell falls into that now as well. And no disrespect to anybody after I think there's some notable pieces afterwards that we'll get to as well. But um what surprised you with Evan Mobley in year one, I, I think the impact that he had right out the jump especially as a defensive guy maybe caught some people off guard but um, what was surprising to you positively and then where do you still feel like there's there's room to improve going into year two
1: yeah I, I mean he was better than I expected and I was super high on him coming into the draft I, I think even as early as February the previous year I was saying that him and Cade were kind of my one a and b in that draft class and I, I think he lived up to those expectations um i i was surprised at how well it worked year one with jared allen um i like that pairing i i thought putting evan mobley with a traditional center was a smart idea because it allows him to kind of play that Draymond role right where he's playing free safety he's able to cover for a lot of guys and i i think that there's a real advantage to that even if you look at the boston celtics how they turn their season around uh beyond uh some of the the additions Derek white getting rid of uh Enos Freedom and, and all of those types of moves, it was putting Al Horford at center and having Robert Williams no longer playing at the five and, and kind of playing in that roving role. Um, so Mobley playing so well uh, on that end of the floor and then it working with Jared Allen, despite the fact that they had such terrible spacing last season, was super encouraging because, as you said, they were really young. So if Garland, Mobley, and Allen work that well, when garland's 22 mobley's 20 and allen's 24 or i guess he was 23 last season um you have to expect that it's only going to get better as the spacing around them improves as their individual games uh improve uh as hopefully mobley can add a jump shot but i think just the level of consistency and the impact he had on both ends of the floor like he was a better offensive player than i expected last year not not to say he was a great one but um, he, he was certainly more NBA ready than even I expected.
0: Yeah, same here. And that's somebody who I, I think I agree with you. It was like kind of a 1A, 1B. I, I guess maybe I'm a 1 and 2, but in their own tier, I was a big Cade guy, but that's also the same I love uh, thing. Cade. For I, 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 I it's hard still, not to, right?
1: Yeah, like a, even still, I, I think in a vacuum, a uh, Cade would probably be my number one choice. Um, just because getting those offensive engines means so much in the NBA. Uh, but within the the context of the Cavs, I, I wouldn't change the pick because I love what Evan Mobley can bring. And Darius Garland taking the, the step forward that he did, obviously uh, addresses a lot of those kind of offensive engine needs. Uh, and, and then, of course, there's the Donovan Mitchell part. <laughs> yeah, that, that little throw in as well. Um, from someone who covers the Kings,
0: I'm very envious of your Evan Mobley and Jared Allen rim protection duo because the kinks might have zero rim protection on this roster headed into next year. Um, When you talk about a offensive engine, I I think is a good segue into Garland. Like you kind of mentioned where did you see the notable progress for him last year when he developed into an all-star and, and what do you see as the future ceiling of him? Um, I, I know that's a hard question that's thrown out a lot. He's only 22, but what do you think is like within reason?
1: Yeah, uh, I think what we saw last season was a continuation of the year before. And uh, I like you guys are probably aware of how this can happen with young guys. Like, guys take kind of that post all star leap. And the previous season in in 2020, 2021, uh, in April, all of a sudden Garland, you could tell he was starting to become a little bit more assertive. Uh, He was averaging a 21 and seven in that month uh, on good efficiency. And it had always been a case of, The skills were there. The flashes were there, but he just wasn't assertive enough. And he took a major step forward. And the thing that was so encouraging to me in that stretch was that Colin Sexton was playing really well at that time as well. He was averaging about 27 points per game while Garland was playing so well. So what that told me and then what last year solidified was Garland has a really scalable game because he can play on and off ball. You can put him with other initiators. Uh, We we learned last year, hey, you can put him even with a point guard in Ricky Rubio that doesn't necessarily have a great outside shot, but just because of his intelligence and and his ability to play on and off ball, that can work. I think that sample size and learning that he can play off of the player like that probably helped the Cavs feel more confident that they could go out and get Donovan Mitchell as someone who has played off of point guards, but again, can play on and off ball. Um, I think projecting moving forward, like the player comparison that jumps out to me the most when it comes to Garland is, is Steve Nash. Like, I, I just think he's that kind of guy that's unselfish. Uh, his teammates love him. He seems to organize every single uh, offseason event. Every time a rookie gets drafted or whatever, they're always saying, yeah, Garland's the first call. He, he's always that, that guy that's stepping up and and guys love to, to be around him. Um, I, I think there's a misconception that he's a total negative uh, on the defensive end of the court. He he actually ha- tried pretty hard last year on, on defense. And I, I thought he did a good job within their system. I mean, uh, EPM uh, from dunks and threes ha- has him rated in the 64th percentile as a defender. And I think on that end, you probably want him to be a little bit like Steph Curry, where he's going to have his limitations physically, but plays good, solid positional defense gets his steals and, and you know, is giving an effort. So, uh, Garland stepped up in a massive way last year and in my eyes and, and I know this is probably controversial and it's a thin margin I, I still think going into this year uh, Garland's probably the Cavs best player.
0: Interesting yeah that that is uh, the flexibility between that pairing is definitely a luxury especially when you have that sort of back line that you're dealing with and to get to the big blockbuster trade that obviously happened somewhat came out of nowhere, at least from my perspective of Laurie Markin and Colley Sexton, Oshaya uh three unprotected first rounders and two swap rights going to Utah for um, for Donovan Mitchell. What was your first reaction and, and how do you feel like the backcourt pairing of Garland and Mitchell
1: will function in Cleveland moving forward? I mean, I was shocked. Uh I mean the the recent reporting had been that the Cavs were were kind of out of the talks. Um I always felt like the Cavs had, had good assets to to go out and, and perform one of these consolidation moves. And I mean, they paid a lot. Like that is a massive, massive haul. Uh sexton is someone that just two years ago was averaging almost twenty five and five on above league average efficiency. Like I, I think that gets overlooked a, a little too frequently. Larry Markinen took a big step forward and I like Ochaya Bhaji. Um, So on top of those picks, I I think Utah got some guys that are going to be a part of their future. I think um, what you're hoping for from a Cavs perspective is a win-win because I I feel good uh, from a Utah perspective of those guys that uh, are coming in. Um, I think the fit with Garland and Mitchell is going to be really good. Like I said, the ability for both of them to play on and off ball. Um, the increase in volume three-point shooting is really important because Lowry was probably their biggest spacer uh, outside of Garland and Mitchell's a guy that's going to come in and take 10 threes a game. They just didn't have a guy that that could go out and do that. So I think one of the other things we learned last season, especially after Sexton and Rubio went down um, and Levert was banged up the, the second that they got him, um, I, th- I think one of the things that really kind of jumped out was Garland was asked to do too much. They became predictable on the offensive end of the court and the drop off when Garland wasn't on the court was pretty staggering. So now I think you're in a position where you can have those guys play together. You can make sure one of them is always on the court. Uh, They did the same thing on the defensive end with Allen and Mobley where Mobley was essentially the backup five and I would expect them to do the same thing with Garland and Mitchell, where you always have at least one elite rim protector in Mobley and Allen, and you always have at least one elite offensive initiator in Garland and Mitchell. So uh, I think from a consistency standpoint, from an offensive versatility standpoint, this really does add a lot to the Cavs. Yeah.
0: And you mentioned a little bit from Utah's perspective, and I'm curious on that because I think Markin and Sexton are two, very interesting players that feel very context reliant, at least from my outsider's point of view, um, starting with with Sexton a little bit. And, and you mentioned like the numbers that he puts up are are kind of ridiculous for him seemingly being overshadowed, you know, in that 2020, 21 year where it's just a third year in the league, 24 points. Um, with four assists in there as well, 47% from the field, 37% from the beyond the arc. He's efficient from the free throw line. Um, what do you kind of view as Sexton's potential moving forward? I'm sure he's going to put up a whole lot of numbers in Utah, as, in, assuming that Bogdanovich has moved on from, Conley's moved on from. like I think that he could easily be the leading scorer on that Utah squad. Um, but when it comes to a team that is in playoff races like do you think that he's likely to be a microwave scorer off the bench or or kind of where do you view sexton moving forward
1: i i still think that he, he can be a starter in this league and i i think that there is still all-star upside with him um you you look at the players that have scored that much at that efficiency uh at that age and there's not a lot of them um it's very comparable even to, to donovan mitchell uh at, at that same age right and um, I, I think there's important differences when you're looking at kind of the potential of Sexton versus the reality of Mitchell and the ways that they go about get their getting their points. And I, I think that is why, from a cast perspective, you go out and get Mitchell. Uh, but from a jazz perspective, I, I think that Sexton absolutely can be a, a cornerstone guy for them. And uh, the thing that's I, disappointing. As a Cavs fan, is you look at the start of the year where the Cavs went seven and four with Sexton in the lineup, uh, missed Garland for a couple of those games, lost Lowry and Love to to COVID, uh, Okoro got hurt in that stretch, and they were still winning games. And the increased help around them allowed Colin Sexton to be a more of a contributor on the defensive end and start to live up to a little bit of that potential. And I, I thought he was playing really good team basketball. Uh, he was playing without the ball. Um, all really positive uh, traits and, and growth, uh, signs of growth, I should say. And the only real thing that went wrong for him was just the three-point shot wasn't falling. And and I think if you remember back to the start of the year, a lot of guys were having trouble with their outside shot uh, with the new ball and, and kind of changes to defense. And that was a major talking point early in the year. So um, assuming that Sexton bounces back from the storm meniscus and that he's healthy, uh, I, I definitely think that he can be a starter. But... He's an interesting guy to build around. Where um, I think he's so good, but it's difficult at times to build a team around him because I do think he needs to play off ball. I think he needs to play with a point guard. Uh, but with him being, you know, six one, even though he's got a w- good wingspan, it's tough to to make a lineup that works around that. So I think that's where you get some of the six man conversations that come up. But I do think that there are context is where that works. I mean, you're you guys are probably familiar with that with Sabonis. Like he's so good that he's going to warrant a a a large contract. Um but the roster building around him is he, an interesting and, and tricky balance and I I think Sexton's a, a similar player in that way.
0: And I think that De'Aaron somewhat has some of the same issues. I think that him stepping up and being more engaged on the defensive end could probably solve a lot of that, but yeah. a guy that really functions well with the ball in his hands kind of opposite of uh, what you were laying out there with Sexton, but still believing in the uh, all-star potential is definitely not something I expected to hear, but I could I, I could see it. I'm not all too uh, brushed up on my Colin Sexton tape but the 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 numbers are ridiculous in the creation and I love the energy I still think one of the most legendary things ever is going three on five at Alabama and almost winning that game like that is not talked about enough he is a psychopath in the best way possible Yeah, one of the hardest
1: working players in seeing competitor and uh, I think from Utah's perspective if you're starting from the ground up having a guy like that's important like Kobe Altman credited Sexton for being the start of the culture change in Cleveland, right? Like, that, the culture of accountability being the the first one in, last one out. Um, I I know, like, even though some of the veterans didn't like him at the start, whether it's Jordan Clarkson, Larry Nance, Kevin Love... Um, he won Kevin Love over like uh, I remember two summers ago we were talking to Martin Rickman from Dime and he was talking about how Sexton and Love are on the phone uh, all the time throughout the offseason like talking through stuff we're b- breaking down film working together like uh, he's one of those guys that he's going to win you over and I hated the pick like I, I absolutely hated the Colin Sexton pick w- when it happened I-, I really wanted Mikhail Bridges or Shea Gilgis Alexander and I thought To be fair, I did not think Shea was going to become what Shea was. I thought he'd become like a George Hill type player. But Sexton even won me over. Like, it's his effort's infectious, and I I think Utah fans are really going to like him.
0: Yeah, definitely seems like a hard guy not to root for. And Laurie Markkinen is a really interesting one to me. Like, it seemed like those first two years in Chicago, there was a a lot of hype around him and his creation ability. He had, I forget what they named it, uh, but... He Had this really slow euro almost, I guess, Harrison Barnes esque <laughs> in, in Chicago, and they started to have like a nickname for it and everything. And it was like, oh my god, this guy's creating at his size. Um, it, and you know, signature move coming, it was like, oh gosh, the hyper round lorry marketing was crazy. And then he really fell off a cliff towards that uh, third and fourth year in Chicago, and then he comes to Cleveland in a very Different role than I think any other team would have considered putting him at the three alongside two other seven footers. um How do you think he will perform without having that context of that back line? Um, it, I don't it's have just, a great feel. Such a unique situation.
1: Yeah, it really was, and I don't think even the Cavs expected it. Like I, I think the expectation was like thinking back to the previous year, Kevin Love was not able to get on the court. He, he just wasn't healthy. Um, I think some people thought, oh, it's like a stealth holdout or whatever. And then you look at te- the Team USA experience, which, which was a couple of months after the season. He wasn't healthy enough to get on the court there either. And and I think for me at that point, I was like, OK, well, this this whole experience is just over. I think Larry Markin was brought in to be that third big and to, you know, if Mobley and Allen play 32 minutes a night, it's okay, they're playing 16 together, 16 apart, and that covers, the, they're on the court at all times. And Lowry can go out and split his minutes with each of them, right? So it gives them spacing, because uh, I, I think we all kind of assumed that that would be really important for two bigs that don't really have an outside game. But uh, then in preseason and training camp, all of a sudden they started experimenting with this three big lineup. Kevin Love was healthy, so you had to come up with other ways to get Lowry minutes. And that's how this whole playing at the small forward thing started. I would not expect him to be a small forward in Utah. I don't think that that works without uh, two elite seven-footers that can switch onto the perimeter and cover just a ridiculous amount of ground. Uh, so I'll be interested to see, though, because I, I would assume that a lot of his off-season prep was to play a little more perimeter style. And uh, we'll see if maybe that amounts to him initiating a little more at the power forward position. Um, but given the goals that Utah has, like I, I would expect a more offensive tilted season for him and for them to you know go out there have some fun go put up some numbers but uh i don't know if there's going to be the same level of accountability and trying to win although you know with the new lottery odds there's not really the same incentive to to tank in the ways that uh you were incentivized in the past so who knows maybe bottom, they they feel like a safe bet for bottom five so maybe they just feel like bottom five's bottom five and let's start building some good habits that's uh, certainly what, yeah, don't tell Danny
0: Ainge about the change lottery odds. I, I don't know that uh, <laughs> it matters all that much to him. Um, I, I do really applaud actually the way that he's stuck to this after what he did in Boston. I think it's a very interesting case study because Boston was so unique with trading away guys that were at the very tail end of their careers. And this is just different, obviously, in a very major way when it comes to Mitchell and and Gobert. Um yeah, I think I'm going to definitely be interested to see how some of those guys function in Utah. But back to Cleveland's perspective. And by the way, Laurie Markman was balling out for for Finland um, during these Eurobasket games. The finisher is a phenomenal nickname. It's the and it, it is great. He just got knocked off in the corner finals, I believe, yesterday to Spain. Um, but yeah, he's been playing phenomenally. there as the only NBA player on that team. Um, but back back to Cleveland's perspective, I think the obvious four in the starting lineup is obviously Garland, uh, Mitchell, and then Mobley and Allen. And then after that, I don't know if you feel like there's somebody that is head and shoulders above everyone else. I, to me, it seems like a little bit of a debate from the outside. And there's three different guys here that stand out to me that I kind of wanted to get your two cents on. Um, and I'd be crazy if I didn't start with Isaac Koro because I was obsessed with Akoro at the time of the draft. I actually ended up putting him second on my board, which does not look <laughs> great in hindsight, um, hey, but I uh, was Schmitz, obsessed with the, did the exact
1: same thing. He had him number two on his big board and he said at the time, it's going to take three, four, maybe five years for the offense to come around. So you're, you're playing, you're just playing the long game. Don't, don't back off the take just yet. <laughs> and the putting the
0: ball on the floor, the playmaking, the finishing is all so intriguing to me. I like, Comps always are broken, right? But the Igudala comp made so much sense to me. But the big swing was he always has to be able to shoot at least mediocrely And my understanding is that defenses could care less about him shooting. Mm-hmm. And the numbers seem okay, right? From from if you just look at the peer numbers, thirty five percent on two and a half, close to two and a half a game. But walk me through how bad. It, is this three-point shot at the current stage for Isaac Okoro? I
1: I think right now it's a confidence thing. Um, I I think there was real growth. Like you talk about the percentages. His rookie year, he shot 42 and 29, and he improved his field goal percentage by 6%. He improved his three-point percentage by 6%. After December, uh, Isaac Okoro shot 50% from the floor and over 39% from three on two attempts per game. So that growth was coming, but what I noticed at the end of the year was it, it's not necessarily about like you know, defenses don't care what your percentage is. They they care about like your willingness to shoot your reputation and the confidence just wasn't there for Isaac Okoro, especially as those games became more and more important as they lost a lot of guys. And all of a sudden he was being asked to do more than he was comfortable uh, doing. You started to see him become a little bit passive. And I, I think the unwillingness to shoot it and passing up shots was actually the biggest issue. Now, if you're projecting forward, I would expect Okoro to be the starting small forward for the Cavs. I think um like it, I think it's easy to forget that he's only like 2 months older than Evan Mobley. Like he this is a really really young guy and the fact that he's already one of the better perimeter defenders in the league and Improved those percentages last year, like that's that's not something that should be brushed under the rug. And he's another one of those guys that just has this reputation as an insane worker, like uh, one of the guys that was viewed as uh, the only real challenger to the Colin Sexton work ethic. So, I, I think when you're projecting forward, it's easier to say, okay, you did this at a volume of two and a half attempts per game. We need you to get that up to like four or five. I think that's an easier ask than asking someone to add something that isn't part of their game at all, that they've shown no ability to. Uh, they, they redid the form on the jumper. It's a lot better now. It's more compact. Uh, it looks really good in the off-season videos. Uh, of course, everybody's jumper looks great in the off-season and everyone's either gained or lost 15 pounds, depending on what's needed. But um, the, the thing with Okoro is... He's kind of the inverse of Colin Sexton because Sexton put up all of those great numbers on above average league efficiency, but yet when you look at like the lineup with Darius Garland, the Cavs were always worse with Garland and Sexton together on the court as a team versus Garland without Sexton. Isaac Okoro's numbers are not sexy at all, but every time he's on the court, it just works. Like the the lineup just seemed to to work really well, and. I mean, when you, when you have Garland, Mitchell, Mobley, and Allen all taking up such like, important uh, parts of the offense, you just kind of need a guy that completes the lineup. And in a lot of ways, I, I kind of feel like Isaac Okoro can be what Tristan Thompson was to those finals teams where the more talent that's around him, the more he can fill in a specific role and excel within that role. So I, I would definitely give him the nod uh, heading into next year. Love to
0: hear it. Love to hear it. I, I tend to think that the when it comes to confidence of shooters, I feel like the beginning of years are so big, right? That yeah. if, if you're able to kind of prove it at the beginning of the year, and uh, anybody it would be so in their head if you saw that the opposing team did, could care less about you from beyond the perimeter. I think it'd be hard for someone to not be in their head about it. But if you're good for those first 15 games and you start to notice that guys aren't as willing to help off of you. I think that that could be such a big, uh, like the, the cloud clear from over your head. So I'm going to be really interested to track that at the beginning of the year. And then when you mention him as one of already kind of the better defenders in the league, I'm curious where you think his versatility lies. Like, is he somebody that when you're playing Philly can check all of Mag C Harden and Tobias Um, like what sort of range versatility wise on defense do you think there is with a Coro?
1: Yeah, I, I think Tobias is maybe a bit of a tough ask. Like the thing I noticed, he played small forward his rookie year. And last year he played a little more shooting guard and and was defending guards. Um, what stood out to me as rookie year was he was able to stay in front of guys, but it seemed like what he wanted to do was stay in front of a guy and then contest the shot. Whereas If you're guarding like a Jason Tatum or a LeBron James, Kevin Durant, or or some of these bigger, small forwards, what you actually need to do is bump them a little bit, like get up under them, uh, disrupt their rhythm, don't let them get to their spots. Like one of the best defenders of Kevin Durant all time was Tony Allen, who's a smaller player than Isaac Okoro. And obviously uh historically great defender but the way that he was able to impact him and even the way that chris paul was able to impact kevin durant when he like switches on him is by getting up into him disrupting those guys and preventing them from getting to their spots so i, I think that's a, a big kind of area of growth for isaac coral and if he's going to make it work uh, as a 6-6 six, six small forward he's going to need to be a little more physical with guys and, and i think now that he's 21 years old, he has a little more experience in the league. Uh, he's probably going to be a little more prepared to do that. But uh, I definitely feel like he he's very comfortable switching on to guards. I mean, the game against the Brooklyn Nets uh, with Harden and Kyrie uh, that the Cavs won late in the game, like, the kind of signature moment was Kyrie was dribbling the ball, trying to get it to Harden and Okora was just denying to nine to nine. And then eventually, uh, got a deflection as they were trying to get the ball to Harden dunked it on the other end. And the Cavs won the game, uh, Kyrie dapped him up after the game saying, Oh my God, like he did such a great job on me defensively. And he's received praise from stars. Like even Jimmy Butler, when he guarded him in a game, uh, Butler was talking about how he can be as good as him, uh, in the future so i i think from okoro's perspective a lot of it's going to come down to physical maturity and just understanding the game like nobody expects someone that's 21 years old to be this, this kind of a defender so just because the Cavs' expectations have accelerated in such a rapid way doesn't necessarily mean we need to rush it with okoro like we understand that the path to this team becoming a contender is likely going to be internal growth. It's Mobley hitting his ceiling. It's Okoro figuring things out. And one set I want to point to, uh, last year, uh, Garland, Okoro, Lowry, Mobley, and Allen, they had a plus 12 net rating. And when you're essentially just replacing Larry Markman with Donovan Mitchell... Uh, I, I I feel pretty good about that unit's ability, especially with everyone else getting a year older, to be a really, really effective lineup for the Cavs.
0: Yeah, it definitely makes sense. I think there's uh understandable reason for optimism there. The other two guys that stand out to me at the wing spot, um, Chetty Osman, who I, I think has maybe... The hype has slowed down a little bit, uh, but has <laughs> one year left at $7.4 million, and then I believe fully non-guaranteed next year at his $6.7 million. Um, What do you feel like needs to be shown from Chetty this next year for that contract to then be guaranteed,
1: if you feel like it's even a debate? I don't necessarily see the path to Jetty being here long-term. Um, he fell out of the rotation towards the end of last year, and he was a lot better when there was a ball handler on the court. He, he was the guy that was most impacted by Ricky Rubio uh, getting hurt uh, because all of a sudden you start to see some of the the reckless Jetty out there. I mean, overall, I, I think the the expectations were always a little too high with him. Uh, he's a nice rotation player. He's someone that can fill in. Uh, But I I think when you're projecting forward, you're probably going to see like Isaac Okoro get minutes at at small forward. Karis Levert's probably going to get some time there. Uh, Dean Wade uh, really always seems to step up and have a big impact on the Cavs. Like uh, he's just kind of been that guy. Like he started almost 30 games last year and the Cavs were really good with him on the court. Um, So I, I, I think, like, even him, I, I could see him getting into the mix over a Jetty Osman because Jetty just hasn't shown that consistency on the defensive end of the court. So um, it wouldn't surprise me to, to see Jetty moved at, at some point last year because, I mean, if if you want to do the kind of side-by-side comparison of, like, Jetty Osman and, and Dean Wade, uh, when Dean Wade was out there with Garland, Okoro, Mobley, and Allen, you had a plus 22 net rating when you swap Jetty for Dean Wade in that lineup, it's a negative 23 net rating. Like he just, the consistency is never there. He never plays at his averages. He's either way better or way worse. He won a lot of games for the Cavs and and helped them out a lot last year. But there was also times where he just was out of the rotation and and JB had to pull the hook. So uh, I just, I don't see him being a a long-term part uh, of this team.
0: Yeah, what, what do you think are the spark notes of like the positives of Chetty Osman as a NBA player down the line.
1: I, I mean, he he's a volume three point shooter off the bench. He can provide some ball handling and, and initiate uh pick and roll, run some offense. I mean, point jetty has been a thing a, a little more than we're comfortable with uh, given the Cavs always seem to have backup point guards that that just disappear. Like uh, two years ago, it was Della Vadova and Dante Exum. Both of those guys went down. Uh, Ricky Rubio, Kevin Pangos didn't work out last year. So they bring in Rondo, who goes down. Uh, and, and they're playing a lot of Brandon Goodwin and Jetty Osman at point guard. So he can do some of that. But he's just one of those guys that, like, if you're putting him in a role where there's a ball handler that can create for him, he can come off of screens, he can shoot off of movement and uh, he can finish at the rim, he just, there's a little bit too much Yolo Jetty at times. Uh, so it's about having the structure in place to, to keep him in the proper role, and if he he's in that situation, he, he can perform well. It's just He's one of those guys that you kind of have to have on a leash. I think my my favorite comparison is that Jetty's a little bit like an old clock where the longer it goes without a reset, the more off it becomes. So sometimes you just got to kind of sit him down, calm him down for a couple games, reset that clock, and and then it's going to tick pretty, pretty accurately. That is a great analogy.
0: I'm definitely going to be stealing that at some point throughout the year for for some Kings player here or there. Have,
1: have you ever had a, an inconsistent Kings player? Has that no, ever uh, never, come up in your never, time covering I the team? Had, <laughs> never.
0: No, they all perform just as expected on a consistent basis every time. Uh, speaking of inconsistency, and for maybe reasons out, not maybe for reasons outside of his control, uh, Karis LeVert is an interesting. Interesting player for sure. Twenty-eight years old. Um, which I think you could simultaneously think expect that him to be younger and older for the <laughs> amount of times that he's spent in the league. Um, uh, but to me, you know, only nineteen games last year, thirty, uh, uh no, I'm sorry, fifty-eight last year between Indiana and Cleveland. But um the year prior to that he plays forty-seven. There's only one year he played more than sixty games in his career. Um, I'm kind of my perspective is whatever you get from LaBert is a positive, but maybe don't rely on getting anything from him. Uh, do you think that's sort of accurate?
1: Yeah, that's bang on. I mean, this is probably going to be the first year in a long time that he's been in a role that probably suits him. Like um, Brooklyn before KD was healthy. That's a situation where he's basically being asked to be the number two or number one, depending on if Kyrie's out. Indiana replacing Victor Oladipo functionally like it's a bit too big of a role and even last year like he comes over the calves wins them a game right off the bat he, he beats indiana in a game without darius garland uh hits the game clinching shot he was awesome uh all-star break happens and the first practice after the all-star break he busts his foot and he misses three weeks and by the time he comes back jared allen is out of the lineup for the rest of the regular season and like Karis LeVert's biggest strength is pick and roll ball handler. His points per possession as a pick and roll ball handler last year, which was pretty much all in Indiana, was actually higher than even Darius Garland. Like he, he's really good in those situations. He, he can make good passes. You look at his playmaking grades on, on B-Ball Index, and they're all very high. Um, but he the reads that he makes are very specific ones. It, it's within the context of the pick and roll. He, he can definitely put on the blinders and, and take some reckless shots. But when you're talking about a six man role for him, that is a lot more tenable. Like I, I think he's a better player than like a, a Jordan Clarkson, who's an effective six man or, or some of these other guys that that are in those roles. So um, I'm excited to see what a full off season does for Karis LeVert, getting a training camp with these guys. Hopefully he can stay healthy. Um, I don't know what the long-term future of him is going to be like the kind of underrated thing with this Donovan Mitchell thing uh trade is that the Cavs actually opened up a lot of cap space next offseason like I I think they're going to have over 20 million in cap space so I don't know if they're necessarily going to want to extend Karis Levert um with with this being a Kings podcast I I have to come clean that my number one target is Harrison Barnes because I would love first thing that came into my mind yeah, I, I would love to have Harrison Barnes play minutes with Garland, Mobley, Allen, and Mitchell. Uh, I think that's a, a, a basically an ideal fit. And, and I mean, let's let's be honest. Harrison Barnes played a massive role in, in the Cavs winning a championship, so it's, it's <laughs> let, let's go, let's run it back, let's do it a second time. I, I'm here for this, but uh, I, I can absolutely see a scenario where you know Karras playing in a more managed role, not needing to log crazy minutes because he was playing 40 minutes at times in indiana um maybe there's going to be a kevin love like resurgence where he's able to stay healthy and and play well within that role
0: you're hilarious for for that hb joke um that i love you that is great that is great come on Um, down to cleveland come on we got got the new logo we got
1: we got everything (laughs)
0: It, it does sound like a pretty perfect fit and it wouldn't surprise me i think the expectation right now is uh This is the last year in Sacramento, if he even makes it through the year. Um, I guess this is a part of the show where I've tried to pitch absolutely everyone. Is there any way that you are interested in a Harrison Barnes or Rashawn Holmes? I'm assuming it's a no on Rashawn Holmes. But is there a Harrison Barnes deal this year? You think that would make sense as a sort of test gap until uh, to see if they wanted to commit that money this offseason? I I tried. I think it's tricky. I don't know that I feel great it, about it alert like, yeah it, like
1: it, it's it's Karras, and, and Karras is extension eligible so if sacramento wanted him for that role right and, and hey work, work off of sabonis like uh let's let's try to get this going more ball handling uh for daren uh to, to get a break every now and then and maybe work on his off ball game like I could see an appeal in that uh, if they felt more confident that they'd be able to retain Laverne and, and make him part of the team. I I, I could see that certainly happening, um, but that's that's just about the the only real scenario that I, I can see. Uh, Rashawn Holmes doesn't make a lot of sense for the Cavs. They they're kind of covered with big men uh, when it comes to Mobley, Allen, Love, uh, even Dean Wade can play there. Robin Lopez is backup center, and then Isaiah Mobley, who they took in the draft, uh, who think is going to need some time with the charge to to kind of extend that three-pointer from the college range. But I, I still, I really like him as kind of like a poor man's Al Horford. Um, I, I think that he's probably going to be part of the gas rotation in the future.
0: Makes sense. And I, I think from Sacramento's point of view that, um, Levert would have to show a lot this year there's definitely been moments where he has so maybe they could talk themselves into that but the weird situation Sacramento's in with Harrison Barnes is if they're moving on from Harrison Barnes they kind of need another one so yeah. it's a, a little bit of a weird scenario that they're sitting yeah, in there's here. not
1: a lot of those in the league like that that's I, I think from a cast fan perspective there was a lot of people that were like okay we gave up a lot to get Donovan Mitchell and I understand we have cap space going in, into the summer but like if we're giving up all this shouldn't have we have gone for a wing and there's no real controlling which star players become available and obviously you need less from the small four position um with the the four guys that you have um but it, it's hard to get those kind of guys and, and barnes is a really reliable player uh he's one of the better options i think you you look at some of the other names that are available next summer and um, you have, like, Kyle Kuzma, Jeremy Grant, Andrew Wiggins, and I think Wiggins is probably going to be outside their price range, and that would be a hilarious return. Um, but uh, I think Harrison Barnes is at the top of the list of guys that just seem to make a lot of sense, if he's willing to come, of course.
0: Yeah, I could definitely see it. I think he functions just exponentially better as like a fifth option fourth option compared to being asked to be a three or even a two on some nights when it comes to offensive responsibility um what do you think is the expectations for the team this year like what qualifies a successful season and i think this is where some people get lost in this mitchell conversation i i think that um As you pointed out earlier, like the path to contention is internal improvement. I think there's a lot of reasons to believe that that totally could happen. But I think people get hung up on like, oh, they're doing all this. And it's like, are they are we sure they're even a top five seed in the East? And I I Mm. think that Miami, Boston, Milwaukee, Philly, Brooklyn, if if the chemistry isn't just the worst thing in the world, I think is one of the most talented rosters in the league. Like, what do you think qualifies a successful season this year?
1: I think the bare minimum uh should be avoiding the play in. Like that that should be the goal. Um, I would say for the regular season, like the goal should be like it, you shouldn't be looking at the floor. You should be looking at the ceiling. And I, I think the the ceiling is competing for home court because I mean, I trust a lot of those teams that you listed off a lot more in the playoffs. Like Miami, I think no matter what seed they are, they can steal home court in game one. They they have that. So they are uh one of the best coach like I, I think Eric Spolster is the best coach in the NBA right now like I, I have a lot of respect for what those teams can do in the playoffs but when it comes to the regular season I mean Kevin Durant's missed more games than Joel Embiid by the last few years and they're relying on three guys that didn't play last season in Ben Simmons TJ Warren and Joe Harris Kyrie obviously misses a lot of time Miami's older, and and I think they got a little bit worse, and they're probably going to get worse with age as well, so I can see them not taking the regular season as seriously. The Cavs need to take the regular season seriously. I I said before, they were half game out of the one seed at the All-Star break last year, and the unfortunate thing is, after January, Garland, Mobley, and Allen only got six games together. Like, that sucks. (laughs) <laughs> like there, there was still like 30 plus games at, at that point of the year. And uh, they just didn't get that opportunity. So I think getting healthier, getting deeper, uh, having a backup point guard, like how will Meadow uh, who I would have been happy with him being just the backup point guard for the year. Uh, but then you have Ricky Rubio um, coming back in, in January or February. So maybe if there's the opportunity to make a trade at the deadline, you feel better about doing like a smaller consolidation trade, like maybe something for a Harrison Barnes. If you know that, hey, we, we got Ricky Rubio coming in and that's going to add to our depth. Um, I, I absolutely think competing for home court should be the Cavs goal because that's going to give them the best chance to win a, a playoff series or be competitive in a playoff series. Because this is still a really young team. Um, Most of these guys don't have playoff experience or the playoff experience they have is limited. Um, So I, I think when you get to the postseason, I'm going to favor. All of those other teams. I want to favor Boston, Milwaukee, uh, Philly, Miami, uh, and, and even Brooklyn. Like uh, th- Those are teams that have been there and done that. And I, I think that's a tough thing to overcome and, and to kind of fake if you don't have it. But getting in position to give yourself the best chance to have a competitive series and, and maybe upset one of those teams... That, that's got to be the goal because the only way you're going to get that experience is getting there. And, and I think the goal for this year should be that. And then you recalibrate in the off season, you, you see if Isaac Coral is taking a step forward and, and what the internal growth looks like. And um, that's probably going to inform how you end up using your cap space or, or your remaining assets to, to really help these guys move forward. So uh, I, I think trying to get like that four seed is probably what I'd have my eye on if I'm the Cavs. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, yeah, the more we talk about it, HB makes so much sense
0: on, on Cleveland next year. He'd be awesome. Um, He'd be awesome. Yeah. The one other thing I'm really curious about is J.B. Bickerstaff's tenure because Sacramento just got their new head coach in Mike Brown. I, I think it's very typical, like we saw with Boston, uh, with Ime Udoka, for there to be a little bit of a learning curve, I guess, to a new system and guys to get acclimated. But J.B. Bickerstaff's tenure specifically is is so interesting to me as somebody that I think wasn't the most successful in his other 10 years, uh, during the time that he spent with, uh, he had one season, I think he was interim if I'm understanding yeah. that right with Houston. Yeah. And then also with Memphis, um, there was the first year, yeah, with Cleveland where he was interim 11 games and then 72. And then, where they only won 22 games and then obviously there is a notable roster improvement with Mobley coming in the the health of Garland and, and kind of all the things that we've laid out um, where they jump up to 44 games last year but what did you kind of notice outside of the obvious of like just the roster got better that changed that allowed for this improvement in Bickerstaff and how important was it that they just like stayed the course with him
1: I I think it's really important that they stay the course. Like I I think people forget, even in the previous season, the Cavs actually got off to a good start. Like They they were about 500 through uh, 20 games, and then Larry Nance got hurt, Love was already out of the lineup, and injuries kind of just piled up. Um, So a a recurring theme here. Um, But what impressed me with Bickerstaff last year was they came in, and I I think part of the reason why they got off to such a hot start was they were more prepared than most teams. Um, Garland and those guys organized training camps before training camp because they understood, hey, we're a young, inexperienced team. We need to have the chemistry at a really high level. Um, and what impressed me with JB was, OK, after they lost Sexton, they changed the offense. And after they lost Rubio, they changed the offense again. They were successful with three different types where at first it was a ball movement, uh, kind of equal opportunity offense. Then it became a, a little more, you know, Garland or Rubio running the show, playing off of one another and, uh, everybody else just kind of fell in line. And then to a heliocentric offense around Darius Garland, where it was a lot of pick and roll. And I think they just ran out of options. Like, once you were doing a heliocentric offense and now all of a sudden at the end of January, Garland starts dealing with a back issue that wasn't going to uh, heal itself until the end of the year. And they lose their one pick and roll uh, big man in Jared Allen. Cause Evan Mobley doesn't set screens well at all at, at this point of his career. Uh, you just kind of ran out of options and, and ran out of secondary ball handlers because Karis Levert wasn't healthy and Ronda wasn't healthy. Uh, but I, I was really impressed by that versatility. And I think we're st- We're going to find out a little more this year about what type of coach J.B. Bickerstaff is, because you look when he was an interim coach in Houston, that was the first year where they led the league in three point rate. And they were just bombing away from three and uh, the three point rate they had as a team back then would still be in the top 10 uh, for offenses around the league here. Then he goes to Memphis and his reputation is, oh, this is a coach that doesn't want to shoot threes and doesn't play young guys because they were playing like Marcus Allen, and these guys over Jaron Jackson Jr. And all the fans got mad. Oh, J.B. Bickerstaff hates young guys. Then he goes to Cleveland. And after that, Memphis actually now shoots fewer threes than when J.B. was there. But he goes to Cleveland and all of a sudden, Isaac Okoro, everyone says he's not going to play because he's a young rookie and J.B. hates young guys. Coral starts every single game and plays a ton of minutes and, and they go really, really young. So I, I think we kind of like turn coaches into memes because we don't really understand what's going on. And and we assume it's one person and not a whole coaching staff and that directives don't come down from the front office. So now that there's actually more weapons and there's more options, we're going to find out how versatile he can be as a coach, right? And I, I, do, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is going to be. I All I really know is that the players are really bought in. They all really connect to JB Bickerstaff and the staff. I super close with Darius Garland. And that's the most important thing, especially when you're talking about at this age, like you want your young players to buy in because if they're bought into a process, you can properly evaluate whether or not that process is working. And it's possible that they hit a ceiling and they have to, to make, a, a change or an adjustment down the road, whether it's bringing an assistant coach or, or reevaluating JB Bickerstaff. But uh, when he got the the contract extension at the same time, Kobe Altman got extension last year. It, it's a vote of confidence that, Hey, this roster's bought into you. We are a believer in you and you don't have to make coaching decisions based on job insecurity. You have that job security, go out and, and, and do your stuff, go coach your style. So, I think we're going to learn a lot about J.B. Bickerstaff this year. It's always different for coaches when
0: expectations
1: actually exist. uh,
0: Substantial expectations, at least I should say. Um, Yeah, and I totally agree with kind of coaches. I think get put into a box, right? I think of Dave Yeager as another prime example. Like he was so grit and grind was the name of the game in Memphis. And then he comes (laughs) to Sacramento and it's like the fastest offense I've ever seen in my life. The exact opposite. But it's just trying to optimize um, whatever specific roster that, That guys are working with um a little bit triggered by the hey you can make decisions with long-term comfort considering that sacramento's general managers are on their last year and i think that that's a little bit ridiculous um, at this point but i do think that there's a lot of value in that and that's uh my primary argument on why they should get extended and i think they've done an all right job but I, I think just, so too.
1: I, I I like what the Kings have done. I am rooting for you guys. Like I, I actually I like the Kings roster. I, I think you guys uh, have a good shot at being a play-in team this year and, and being competitive. I I like what Sacramento has done. Okay, last thing because I do want to get your thoughts. I am
0: getting a hard yes or no on if they break the the play the 16 year playoff drought from each person here. Um so I'm gonna get to that in a second here. Um but Is there a player on this Cleveland roster that you think like people on the outside maybe don't appreciate enough or somebody that's towards the end that you're really keyed in on? Like you mentioned like a Dean Wade or even if you want to say Howell Neto or Robin Lopez is Dylan Windler, Lamar Stevens. Like, is there a guy that specifically stands out to you as someone that you're excited to see towards kind of the end of the rotation that's maybe being slept on or not understood well from the outside?
1: Shout out theoretical Dylan Windler. I mean, that guy like... (laughs) In theory, that should have worked so well. And uh, unfortunately, his first summer league with the Cavs was was awful because John Bieland was putting them through three day practices as they're playing back to backs. And he got a stress fracture in his leg and and the rest was kind of history. Apparently, he's healthy and and he's looking good. I'll believe it when I see it. Uh, It's funny because he's got the reputation of being a great three point shooter. He was fantastic in college. And he just doesn't take enough of them. Like I, I just want this guy to pull. He's doing everything else. He rebounds well. He passes the ball well. He defends surprisingly well. But he just won't shoot. Uh, he got a lot of reps uh, towards the end of the season, and he hadn't made the three pointer uh, since January. It, it was the the weirdest thing. I, I think it's Dean Wade. Like I, I think Cavs fans are almost like ashamed to like fully embrace Dean Wade and like just kind of admit that he's a rotation player like I remember when we were doing our draft coverage uh Trevor Magnotti who we had on from the step back uh when the Cavs picked up Wade as an undrafted player he said this was a first round talent if he didn't have that knee injury so this is a smart kind of gamble to take and he's someone that's just consistently steps up and every time he's starting he plays really well Ah, uh, when they played Brooklyn without Evan Mobley, like Dean Wade was the guy that guarded and bothered Kevin Durant throughout that game. Like it was super surprising, but he did a great job. He moves his feet really well laterally. He can shoot well from three. He's a good athlete. Um, like at this point, he, he's rotation player. And and I you said it on, on last night's podcast. We we got to stop talking about him like he's a fun story and, and just admit that this is just a good rotation player and. and These types of stories happen across the league. Miami always seems to find undrafted guys. And and, um, just because they're undrafted. never does. (laughs) (laughs) Just just because they're undrafted doesn't mean they can't uh, evolve into an actual rotation player. And I I think Dean Wade has done a really good job of that uh, the last couple of years. I
0: wonder if the fan base is just triggered by D. Wade's.
1: Like, it's just can't happen Well, I mean, you say that, but D way just uh, delivered for the Cavs. He, he went to Utah and and he got Donovan, Mitchell to his <laughs> former team.
0: It's a good point. This is a good point. Um, last thing before I get you out of here, Justin is I guess two things just on the Kings and, and your outsider perspective on the Kings. And I know this is difficult for some people. I clearly don't have a great understanding of Cleveland, I'm not expecting you to have a great understanding of Sacramento. Um, but before I get your yes or no for, the postseason for Sacramento. What do you think of a Fox and Sabonis pairing?
1: I think that is a lot of talent. Like I was really high on De'Aaron Fox. Um I I thought there'd be a leap happening a little sooner than there is, but honestly, like the league just got so much deeper, so much quicker than I even expected. And I, I think we've seen like one player isn't going to get you in the playoffs the the same way that they were able to in the past. Like even Steph Curry missed the playoffs like two years ago and uh, with with basically the same roster. Like, don't don't tell me that like a bum knee clay is the difference between that team missing the playoffs and and a finals team. Right. Like and and Draymond um, played that
0: year, too. I definitely point to that roster a lot of the importance of surrounding pieces. Right
1: exactly so you need to have the right role guys around them you need to have guys that can cover uh for Sabonis defensively um i i think it'd be really nice if you kind of have like one of those rare fours that can provide rim protection or roll over and, and switch uh you know and Evan Mobley <laughs> would be great with with someone like Sabonis uh but that's a lot of talent like i i think those are guys that make players better and uh, from a De'Aaron Fox standpoint, like I'd like to see him kind of get that three point percentage up to like the, even if it's like a 33%, like he doesn't have terrible volume. Like, I, I think that that would make a, a nice difference. I'd like to see him contribute on the defensive end of the court a little bit more, a little more regularly. Uh, I love the herder pickup. I, I I like Davion Mitchell a lot. Um I, I think that Sacramento absolutely can be competitive and get in the play-in, but it's going to come down to how well though Sabonis and, and Fox execute. And I, I think sometimes we are guilty of pretending like basketball is just this math problem. And you, you just insert players with these net ratings and, and it, whichever one comes out the best is going to win. No, these are people like there are people and they you play 82 games and you have good games and bad games. And, I think if they can find a level of consistency, um, they're they're going to have a good shot at, at being really competitive in the Western Conference.
0: Yes, I definitely uh, agree with all the things you pointed out. And, and Justin, this is where I get a hard yes or no from you. And don't feel obligated. I know people do because this is a Kings podcast to be kind to the Kings. I think the West is ridiculously challenging. My personal range is somewhere between 9 and 11, which is not as... Uh, Maybe great as a 10 seed actually probably would feel. But Mm -hmm. yes or no to ending this 16 year postseason drought. And the postseason
1: is not the play in. They'd have to win the play in. Hey, now, hey, now, postseason is
0: absolutely. You're you're right. Postseason is playoffs is not.
1: Thank you. Because as a cast fan, we absolutely made the postseason last year. We just didn't make the playoff. Um, I think the postseason drought is going to end. I don't think the playoff uh, drought is going to end. Uh, It's real unfortunate that you didn't have this team going into last year because the West was a lot weaker last year in comparison. I mean, the eight seed, uh, uh, I I guess it's the Pelicans by virtue of winning the play in, but you you had two like 36 and 34 win teams make the play in, whereas in the Eastern Conference, you had it took 43 wins to get there. Um, But now the the West is healthier. The Clippers are healthy. uh, Denver's going to be healthy. Obviously, Utah's going to drop out of it. Um, but Portland's going to be healthier. Uh, I, I think Sacramento has a, a good shot at getting the nine seed and I, I would love to see them. I, I think that's where I would pencil them in right now is as a nine seed. Makes sense. Um,
0: I am, yeah, at probably about a 10, I, I agree with you. I think postseason drought ends playoff does not, I think we're at two and three now through five episodes on two yeses and three no's understandably. So, um, <laughs> Again, that is
1: Justin Rowan
0: um, at Cavs Anada. How do you pronounce this? You have to have that. You, you,
1: you nailed it. I, I mean, it looks a lot better in, in writing than it does in print. <laughs> my dog jumps up behind me. Um, but yeah, it, it just slap the Cavs and and You'll find me there. There we go. Uh, Justin Rowan, host of the Chase Down podcast, affiliated
0: officially with the Cleveland Cavaliers. Um, can't tell you how much I appreciate you hopping on, Justin. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun um agreed and anybody uh listening definitely take a look at the king's herald myself and all the other great guys and gals are doing our 30 question series um as we get prepared for media day that's at the end of this month here and take a look at their patreon sp- support local independent kings coverage and if you enjoyed this episode of the king's Bulls podcast please subscribe rate and review and hear from us again in the next couple of days